I'd like to begin tonight with a short poem from a Buddhist nun named Rangetsu. She's a nun who lived in the 1800s, and she was said to have such an acute sense of impermanence that she kept all of her belongings in a few boxes, always ready to move on. She once likened herself to a drifting cloud blown by the fierce wind. Some, uh, a lot of her poems really resonate with me. This one's called Dharma Light. If you want to extend the light of the Dharma, let it first illumine your own heart. And thus we do this practice, to really illuminate our own hearts, to discover our natural radiance. And the seven factors of enlightenment that I've been speaking about in the last weeks are one framework in which we can work to do this. These factors being the causal conditions for the realization of Nibbana, of the unbinding of the heart, of discovering the mind freed from the forces of greed, hatred, and delusion. These forces that keep us caught in struggle, pain, strife. So these seven factors of enlightenment being very wholesome forces that help to illuminate, that help us to see clearly, that take us into the depths of understanding of why it is that we suffer in our lives. We've been uh, hearing of these seven factors through a progression, first beginning with mindfulness, the ability to connect with our experience, to know this experience becoming interested in this experience and investigating the qualities, the characteristics of experience. And this calls forth a lot of energy, effort, a momentum in looking deeply into experience. And in doing so, we hit a place of delight in seeing truth, a raptness of mind, which leads into a contentment, calm, tranquility, which enables a strengthening of concentration. And this concentration then becoming the platform for insight, wisdom to arise. And it takes us into the last factor of enlightenment, Uh, that of equanimity. Equanimity taking time to develop because we have many habits that are the opposite of equanimity. We have many habits of reactivity. Equanimity being quite different in that it's really an unconditional acceptance of experience of life. It's where the mind becomes unshakable, steadfast, 
and at the same time deeply knowing of experience and deeply connected. It's where there's an evenness of mind. The mind is impartial. It's not caught up in this frenzy of reactivity. The mind is able to open to all of the different experiences that we have as a human being. It's able to let these experiences flow through. T.S. Eliot spoke about equanimity. He didn't call it equanimity, but it really, this poem really points towards this quality of equanimity. At the still point of the turning world, neither flesh nor fleshless, neither from nor towards. At the still point, there the dance is, neither arrest nor movement. And do not call it fixity, where past and future are gathered, neither movement from nor towards, neither ascent nor decline, except for the point, the still point, there would be no dance, and there is only the dance. Equanimity, where we can really let life flow through us with unconditional acceptance. We can experience all of the ups and downs all of life's joys and sorrows. And we can hold it all. A great capacity of the mind to be able to hold it all. I'd like to share a teaching story that um, there's many different versions of and it points, too, towards this quality of equanimity. And this, uh, this version of the story is said to have happened in the days of Lao Tzu. There was once an old man in a village. He was very poor, but even kings were jealous of him because he had a beautiful white horse. And kings had offered fabulous prices for this horse. But the man, even though he was very poor, would say, This horse is not a horse to me. It is a person. And how can you sell a person, a friend? One morning he found that the horse was not in the stable. And the whole village gathered and they said, You foolish old man, we knew that someday that horse would be stolen. It would have been better to sell it. What a misfortune! And the old man said, Don't go so far as to say that. Simply say that the horse is not in the stable. This is the fact. Everything else is judgment. Whether it is a misfortune or a blessing, I don't know, because this is just a fragment. Who knows what is going to follow it? People laughed at the old man. They had always known that he was a little crazy. But after fifteen days... Suddenly, one night, the horse returned. He had not been stolen. 
he had escaped into the wild. And not only that, he brought a dozen wild horses with him. And again, all the people gathered and they said, Old man, you were right. This was not a misfortune. It has indeed proved to be a blessing. And the old man said again, Again, you are going too far. Just say that the horse is back. Who knows whether it is a blessing or not? It is only a fragment. You read a single word in a sentence. How can you judge the whole book? This time the people could not say much, but inside they knew that he was wrong. Twelve beautiful horses had come. And the old man had an only son who had started to train the wild horses. Just a week later he fell from a horse and his legs were broken. And the people gathered again and they judged and they said, Again, you've proved right. It was a misfortune. Your only son has lost the use of his legs and in your old age he was your only support. Now you are poorer than ever. And the old man said, You are obsessed with judgment. Don't go that far. Say only that my son has broken his legs. Nobody knows whether this is a misfortune or a blessing. Life comes in fragments, and more is never given to you. It happened that after a few weeks that the country went to war, and all the young men of the town were forcibly taken for the military. Only the old man's son was left because he was crippled. The whole town was crying and weeping because it was losing a fight, and they knew most of the young people would never come back. They came to the old man and they said, You were right, old man. This has proved a blessing. Maybe your son is crippled, but he is still with you. Our sons are gone forever. And the old man said again, You go on and on judging. Nobody knows. Only say that this is what your sons have been forced to enter the army, and my son has not been forced. Often in our lives, when something good happens, we take it to be wonderful, uh, a blessing. We become enthused. When something of misfortune happens, we can feel betrayed by life, shattered by life. We behave much as these village people did, where uh, we think it is great misfortune. But this is not the way of equanimity. Equanimity is the voice of the old man that can just see, this is so. This is the way things are right now. Can just see what is true in this moment, without judging, without being, at times when the good is happening, being swept away into excitement, enthusiasm, and at the times when uh, seeming misfortune happens, without being broken by it, without falling into grief, distress. Paying attention in our lives when some event takes place that seems like good fortune. How do we respond then? Do we have a mind balanced with equanimity? Just knowing that this is so in this moment? Or do we get excited? Do we get exuberant? Not so long ago, um, a friend of mine was having an art show 
and I went to this art show and I purchased a piece of his artwork. And this is something I'd never done before in my life. I felt like a grown-up <laughs> purchasing this piece of artwork. And then um, brought, it ho- or brought it home and it was hung up on the wall. And I was sitting there looking at it. And I was just so excited by this experience that I found that I had to go outside in order to calm down. You know, and this is really not the mind of equanimity. This is what happens when we get caught up, captivated by our experiences. And it's really, you know, we get so often get pulled into this energy of excitement with experiences. Just this morning, I was standing in the shower. And as I looked down, the, the, the spray of the water was you know, coming over my shoulder, and the light was hitting it in such a way that every droplet was illuminated. And there was a moment where of just clear seeing of that. And then there was a moment where there was this energy of leaning into the experience, where you know it was like, oh, this is impermanence. This is a scene of impermanence. But it was really the directing of the mind towards that which was pleasant in this moment, um, and an energy of excitement with it, not the mind of equanimity. Also, looking in our lives when unpleasant experience happens, when things seem like misfortune. Are we open? Are we connected? Are we present? Can we say, this is just what is so? really looking at reactivity in the mind. Also looking at the equanimity, or seeming like equanimity, that can be present when um, experience is neither pleasant nor unpleasant, seemingly neutral. Do we disconnect? Or is there a strong knowing of this experience? Can we stay connected at this time. So in working with equanimity, really looking to see the response in the mind to experience. And equanimity is really rooted in insight. It's not a chance appearance in the mind. It's not a state that we suddenly fall into. But it's a state of wisdom where there's a wisdom that has come through the seeing into impermanence, knowing the futility of trying to grasp on to these pleasant experiences or trying to push away the unpleasant experience. It's where there's a real maturity of insight, of seeing clearly. We know better. There's a wisdom. And so things can just unfold, just as they are. 
It allows us to stay deeply connected with life. It allows us to enter into new territory, to have new understanding. Because when equanimity isn't present, when it's not there, when we hit new experience, fear can arise. We start to pull back. Or we start to put on filters uh, from past experience, covering over experiences, and not allowing ourselves to enter into new experience. So with equanimity, we find that we have the capacity to venture into the unknown, to venture into new terrain. Equanimity is often likened to a mountain. Actually, I found um, a short verse from the Buddha. And he uttered it one day when he was sitting near to the Venerable Sariputta. And at that time, Sariputta was sitting there meditating. And the Buddha said, Just as a mountain of rock is unwavering, well settled, so the one whose delusion is ended is like a mountain undisturbed. I love it when equanimity is likened to a mountain because I feel like I know mountains very well, very deeply, and it, it just gives me some frame of reference for the knowing of the state of equanimity. I grew up around mountains and actually considered mountains to be uh, one of my first teachers. And I loved to be up on a mountain where there was just so many different changing conditions. You know, in the course of a day on a mountain, the weather being so variable, being sunny in one moment, windy, rainy, can turn to hail, can turn to snow, could be caught in a blizzard, um, uh, could, uh, could the weather itself changing, and so many different forms of life on this mountain. You know, birth happens on the mountain, death happens on the mountain, and the mountain just sits there. The mountain is just accepting of all of these changing conditions. The mountain never wobbles. It simply sits steadfast, open, available. And this is the posture of equanimity, that deep stability, that unshakableness as well as the openness and receptivity. And this is the real strength of the heart that we can discover in our practice. We can discover by bringing together all these seven factors of enlightenment and really having them culminate in this equanimity. 
we find with equanimity that there is a great balance. And this balance is not a rigidity. It's not a fixation of mind. Rather, it's a malleability of mind. With this balance, it's not like we often think of balance as being, you know, like balanced on the tip of a knife, you know, balance being such a fine point. The balance that comes with equanimity is vast. It's this huge spaciousness. So spacious as the sky. It is where we get the capacity to hold both um, the depths of despair and the great joy that we experience at times in our lives. Rainer Rilke, in his book, Book of Hours, Love Poems to God, says, let everything happen to you, beauty and terror, just keep going, no feeling is final. At times in our lives we will find that we are faced with great joy in one moment. And even a split second later, at times there may be what seems like tragedy. And it is equanimity that helps us to hold it all. And the Buddha himself very much embodied what one could call absolute equanimity, where he lived in a way that in many, many different ways one found equanimity embodied. One story that someone was telling me only uh, very recently, actually just yesterday, and when they told me this story, it really struck me in that moment, um, the power of this equanimity. And so it's said that during the life of the Buddha, at one point there was a, a queen who was a disciple of the Buddha named Samavati. She was actually said to be foremost as a laywoman in the practice of loving-kindness. And Samavati lived in a situation where she couldn't actually come to the Buddha for teachings. She lived in an inner apartment in uh, the king's palace with 500 other women in waiting. And um, how they would receive the teachings of the Buddha was that she would send a servant out to go and listen to the Buddha. The servant was called Kujitara. And Kujitara would go out and hear these sermons that the Buddha would give and then come back and share these teachings with the queen and these 500 women. And there's actually a collection of 113 short discourses that were what she was said to have delivered to these women when she came back, and this is called the Itivutaka. But what happened was one day this inner apartment burned down. 
and all of the women in it. And, you know, when I heard this, I just thought of how devastating events in life can be. You know, it reminded me of uh, the incident of 9-11, where, you know, all of a sudden, many people in one city died. And we all know of the effect at that time. And so it's also said that um, right after this happened, many bhikkhus went into this uh, village or kingdom on alms round. And when they came back, they reported to the Buddha what had happened. And so they asked the Buddha what, where all these women had taken rebirth. And he replied by saying that all of the women, without fail, had reached at least stream entry. You know, I think this is something for the teachings that uh, Kujutara had given to these women, how clear it must have been. But it also, um, just in hearing this story, that here was the Buddha, in hearing of this great tragedy, was able to just see beyond the tragedy itself, to remain balanced, to remain composed, and help others to see and view this experience in a different way. When I heard that story, I actually remembered back to when the day of 9-11. And, you know, there, there is the pain, there is the suffering. You know, many um, children no longer had a parent that came home. And, you know, not to diminish that aspect of tragedy. But at the same time, my mind wondered, how do we know that these people didn't become enlightened at that moment? You know, we have no way of knowing. But really for me, in the hearing of this story yesterday, was just the composure of the Buddha when such tragedy could happen. And I know on 9-11, I didn't have that same composure. Because equanimity has the quality of deep acceptance, there can often be a misconception that this will lead us into passivity. But this is not the case, because um, it's not passive, nor is it filled with futility or hopelessness or resignation, which has a way of collapsing from experience but it is born of being connected. And this is really a key when we are trying to decipher in our experience whether we have simply moved into being passive or whether there is equanimity. It's looking to see if we are truly connected with this experience. And from this, there can come a responsiveness that is not based in the reactivity. It creates the spaciousness in the mind where true wisdom can be found. Nor is 
equanimity, indifference. Indifference has the energy of aversion, of pulling away from experience. It's when we're unengaged with experience, where we're disconnected, where it can, this con- disconnection can happen through denial, it can happen through fear of coming close to experience, it can happen through fear of intimacy, um, it can happen through just the fear of what it is to be a human being. And so we become indifferent. When we're indifferent, there's separation. But with equanimity, there's this complete connection where there's no bias, prejudice, or preference. This allowing us to be truly open with all experience. And it's really been my practice that has helped me to see how much reactivity I actually have in my mind. To see just how many times I will either uh, try and hang on to experience or push away experience. You know, and sometimes it almost seems like it's a, a cellular reaction. You know, it happens so close to the moment of contact with experience. So just paying close attention. When we have equanimity, it can help us to be balanced in the face of sensual desire so that we are not continually being propelled towards the beautiful or we're not rejecting experiences that are undesirable. It helps us to overcome attachment to our preferences. While we're on retreat, noticing how much preference we have, noticing as we walk through the food line, how some food is there and desire Attachment, wanting, comes up so strongly. Other food is there. Aversion, not wanting, pushing it away. But if we have equanimity, we can really eat in a balanced way. Eating just the amount that we need. Eating just what will help benefit our practice. and simply accepting what is offered. 
equanimity will help us to be with any of the changing conditions that happen. Walking in the hall one day and it's really hot, equanimity will help us to just to be with this heat, sweating, whatever the experience is. We walk in and the hall is cold, we note the coolness, maybe we're shivering. Um, We just experience it and know that this is so. Some days it may be very quiet around here, other days it may be noisier. We learn to just be with all of these changing conditions. I had an experience in Burma that um, really helped me. Uh, When I was practicing at a center called Chamya Yekta, it tended to be quite a noisy center. Uh, You know, it's in the middle of Rangoon and uh, near a busy street. Um, And there was a lot of construction happening in the center. And, you know, that I had somewhat learned to work with. And then one day, um, they started drilling right beside the meditation hall. And the drilling would go from morning until evening. And the first day of this drilling was actually a, a very good day for me in my practice, where things were very balanced, you know, and I could hear it, just as hearing, hearing. And it wasn't a problem. Well, that drilling continued, not just for that day, but for weeks. And, you know, it wasn't always that I was in that place of equanimity. But what that first day had shown me was that the sound itself was not the problem. It was really just in how I was relating to my experience. Equanimity helps us to look upon all of the vicissitudes of worldly events with an equal mind, where we can open to experiences of praise and blame, pleasure and pain, loss and gain, fame and disrepute. These experiences we have over and over again in our lives. And, you know, I know in particular for me, working with uh, praise and blame as a teacher has been a wonderful practice. Because it can happen that, um, you know, giving a Dharma talk, I might say something, and later on a yogi will say to me, oh, that was so great, that was so helpful. And it could be the very next yogi that walks in and says, oh, you should never say something like that, that's terrible, it's not helpful at all. And, you know, I could, if I listened to the first one, you know, I could become all inflated. Oh, how wonderful. You know, I'm such a good teacher. And if I listened to the next one, you know, I could just crumple up in a heap. But with equanimity, we just hear praise in one moment. We hear blame in the next moment. 
Again, the Buddha was a, a wonderful living example of equanimity. And, you know, I, I know in my own mind I, I think of the Buddha being, you know, such a great teacher that he would never be exposed to criticism, that people would always respect and revere the great teachings that he gave. But in his life, it was really otherwise, that you know, many people were jealous of him, that there was a lot of animosity towards him. Um, people often wanted to cause him harm. You know, he was falsely accused of murder. He was also falsely accused of getting a woman pregnant. Um, and yet, he never seemed to regard these people as his enemies. He... Uh, was able to stay very balanced in the presence of criticism. Once uh, he actually said, as an elephant in the battlefield endures the arrows shot from a bow, even so I will endure abuse and unfriendly expressions of others. And this is what equanimity helps us to be able to do not to be broken when people speak ill of us. You know, it's from this great spaciousness of mind. Ajahn Sumedho, um, probably many of you are familiar with him. He's in the Amravati Sangha in England. He said, the mind is like space. There is room in it for everything, for nothing. We always have a perspective once we know that space of the mind, its emptiness. Armies can come into the mind and leave, butterflies, rain clouds, or nothing. All things can come and go through without us being caught in reaction or resistance. In our lives, we find the necessity to cultivate equanimity in order to have wise relationships. Without equanimity in relationships with those who are dear to us, we will find that we become overly attached, overly identified with these beings. And we find that we're wanting something in return or we're wanting to gain something. But when equanimity is present, we find that we can love without wanting something in return. We find that we can love without the desire to possess, without becoming overly attached we can freely offer our love, not wanting anything in return. It also enables us to open up our hearts to people beyond those that are dear to us. It helps us to be able to move to this place of impartiality and having an open heart to all beings, being all-inclusive, including people that are difficult for us to relate to, 
and people whom we may not have a strong reaction to one way or another. And this again is because the mind is not caught in reactivity. It's poised and balanced, connected, and not sentimental. There's a phrase um, when equanimity practice is taught that is a very powerful phrase and really can take us in our relationships into a place of equanimity when we call it to mind. It's a phrase of all beings are owners of their own karma. Their happiness or unhappiness depends upon their actions and not upon my wishes for them in our relationships with people who are dear to us, when we're becoming overly attached, we start to think that we are responsible for their happiness. We start to cling too much. And remembering that these people, these beings, are owners of their own karma. They are responsible for their own happiness or unhappiness can help break this over-involvement or this feeling of responsibility. And it doesn't mean that we don't love them. It doesn't mean that we cut off from them. We can still keep our heart open and connected, but not overly identified. This phrase of equanimity at times has been really helpful uh, to me in my own practice, using it for myself at times when I may have done something that was unskillful. And rather than moving into uh, states of guilt, blame, uh, whether it's internal blame, external blame, just to stop and be honest with oneself to recognize one's actions, and to know that one is um, an heir to one's own karma, that one will have to live with the consequences. What I found when I could do this was it wasn't bringing up despair in me, but it was helping me to stay upright in the face of having done something unskillful. It was helping me to become an owner to those actions. And it helped to bring about integrity. And just knowing, okay, I've done this and I have to live with the consequences. It kept me from being a victim in the situation. Equanimity also helps us to strengthen compassion. It's said that it gives the strength to compassion to stay steady in the face of pain, to be fearless, 
and to have a heart endowed with courage and to be able to do this over and over again. It does this through bringing the wisdom to compassion, to be able to see that this is what is so. And yet, with the compassion, the heart still stays fully engaged, fully connected. So looking at ways that we can strengthen, support the unfolding of equanimity. Needing to work with acceptance. This can be, you know, we don't have to wait until uh, equanimity is fully developed. But even when we first sit down and uh, be with the breath, if we can just accept the breath just as it is, not needing to change or alter it in any way, this helps set the stage for equanimity. And if we keep staying steady in being with that breath, accepting that breath moment to moment in its unfolding, this helps us to learn to be with other experiences just as they are. Not having a preference for one kind of experience over another kind of experience. This helps to bring about the balance in the mind. We also uh, work with equanimity when we work with balance, just in the way of effort or energy. And so when we bring Um, effort to our experience, we want to do so in a way where we're applying neither more or less than what is needed. Just applying the effort or energy that is needed to simply meet this experience, where the mind is neither too tight nor too loose. We work with equanimity when we work with bringing an evenness of mind to experience, where we allow the mind to fully experience anything and let that be with an evenness of mind. A knowing of the whole experience. We work directly uh, with the forces of attachment and aversion as a way of working with equanimity, which, you know, just that reactivity in the mind helps us to look into the darkest corners of our mind. Now, when in the face of aversion, we're not simply turning away from it, but we're allowing ourselves to connect, it takes us into deep, dark territory. But that 
can be done with this evenness of mind. We work with equanimity when we learn to be mindful of everything we do in a day without making any one thing more sacred than anything else. Paying attention to everything that we do. We strengthen equanimity when we pay attention to what it is that we call self. Because if we can give up this possessiveness of self, believing that everything belongs to us, when we find no self, then there's nothing that we need to cling to or to be aversive to. We work with equanimity when we learn to be all-inclusive in our loving-kindness. So just in a day to notice when you become aversive to one yogi or very fond of another yogi. Letting your loving-kindness be all-inclusive. It's also said to be helpful to avoid people that have strong attachments and to make friends with people who stay cool. In the strengthening of equanimity, it's said to be helpful to incline the mind towards equanimity. I had one retreat um, and it probably some of you know, if you've been to any of my Dharma talks, and some of you may not know, that at retreats, at the end of a retreat, I will often name a retreat. And this one retreat, I named it 108 Ways to Access Equanimity. And uh, it was, just seemed a a continual um, lesson in how one can find equanimity in experience. And, you know, so it's sometimes working with balance. Sometimes, for me, it was just turning the mind towards what in experience was less reactive in that moment. What was cool? <clears throat> so equanimity being the seventh factor of enlightenment, where the mind becomes balanced, unshakable, poised, even, steady. All of this coming through, seeing clearly, being able to open to, stay connected to, experience, not being caught in reactivity. Remembering that all of these factors of enlightenment, 
um, become very beautiful factors in the mind, that they uh, can be a tendency to cling or want any of these factors, and thus they become hindrances at times. So in our practice, needing to work skillfully with the cultivation of all of these enlightenment factors, being able to recognize when they are present, when they are absent, noting what gives rise to um, the strengthening of them, uh, what helps them to stay into being, what helps them to strengthen. These seven factors of enlightenment being very wholesome qualities that we can cultivate in the mind. These are some of the ways that the Buddha referred to these seven enlightenment factors. He said that they lead to direct knowledge, to enlightenment, to nibbana. He said that they lead to going beyond from the near shore to the far shore. He said these seven factors were noble and emancipating, and that they lead the one who acts upon them out to the complete destruction of suffering. So all of these factors having a way of strengthening our capacity to see things as they really are and unbind this heart and mind from the depths of despair to find an unbound freedom. So let's just sit for a moment. May all beings know the deep peace of equanimity. the sharing of blessings. Mm -hmm. 
Now let us chant the verses of sharing and aspiration. Through the goodness that arises from my practice, may my spiritual teachers and guides of great virtue, my mother, my father, and my relatives, the sun and the moon, and all virtuous leaders of the world. May the highest gods and evil forces, celestial beings, guardian spirits of the earth, and the Lord of death, May those who are friendly, indifferent, or hostile, may all beings receive the blessings of my life. May they soon attain the threefold bliss and realize the deathless through the goodness that arises from my practice and through this act of sharing may all desires and attachments quickly cease and all harmful states of mind until i realize nibbana in every kind of birth, may I have an upright mind with mindfulness and wisdom, austerity and vigor. May the forces of delusion not take hold, nor weaken my resolve. The Buddha is my excellent refuge. Unsurpassed is the protection of the Dharma. The solitary Buddha is my noble Lord. The Sangha is my supreme support. Through the supreme power 